Jeffrey Henderson is the William Goodwin Aurelio Professor of Greek uh, Language and Literature, and he's a former Dean of the College of Graduate School of Arts and Sciences at Boston University. He's held professorships at Yale, Michigan, and Southern California. He's best known for his pioneering work on the history of sexuality, on Greek drama and politics, uh, and for his editions and translations of the comic playwright Aristophanes. He's held fellowships from the NEH, the American Council of Learned Societies, and the John Simon Guggenheim Foundation. And in 2011, he was uh, elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Since 1999, he's been the general editor of the Loeb Classical Library, now containing some 520 volumes by the Harvard University Press, and since 1912, the world's premier series of texts and translations of Latin and Greek authors. Now, all of them are online for a reasonable subscription to institutions and individuals. Um, when news of this appeared, Last year, uh, we immediately received a lot of requests to add it to our electronic resources. Um, and none of those requests were even from our classics group. This was, this was a really, uh, this spoke to our membership. And uh, Library Journal, Choice, Booklist, The Wall Street Journal, all have reviewed it. The Los Angeles Book Review, uh, Review of Books declared that James Loeb himself would be extraordinarily pleased. And we are pleased to have Dr. Henderson here this evening. Good evening. This is uh, more of a, a gathering than I expected on this wonderful afternoon. Uh, so uh, thanks for coming and, uh, and welcome to the Athenaeum. It's a, an honor and a real thrill to be invited to speak here, and especially on a subject so important to our common enterprise, the opportunities opened and the challenges posed by the fast-moving digital revolution to the viability of the Codex book to the mission of libraries, to the culture of reading and writing, and to the concept of literacy itself, both cultural and literary literacy, as exemplified by the process of creating and launching the Digital Loeb Classical Library. As you're the perfect audience, uh, the Athenaeum was an early adopter of the Print Loeb Library, you have all of the volumes of it, uh, which was launched shortly before the debut of Fenway Park in 1912, just a few months earlier. And over the years, you have acquired all of its volumes, and uh, you're an early adopter of the digital library, which debuted last se September. The Greek and Roman classics, the oldest written works of the Western world, and nowadays sometimes denounced as relics of dead white male imperialism, best left to the past, may seem an odd choice to illuminate the latest high-tech, postmodern, and globalized challenges. But as we look into the future of texts, the classical past has lessons for us. The sheer durability that over the course of 2,800 years established these texts as special. It's a feat of survival that required their adaptability uh, to a series of radically new media and consequently to new systems of reference and organization. Among them, James Loeb's once radical idea of providing English translations alongside the Latin and Greek, thus inviting the uninitiated masses into what had been a temple of high culture. 
This history of the classics played as it had to play a role in our thinking about whether and how to move the Loeb Classical Library into the digital age. Uh, so I'd like to step back for a few minutes and, and look at the past uh, and, uh, and provide some continuity as we move up to the, the present day. The Greek oral tradition, Homer's winged words, was first captured in writing in the 8th century BC and launched a literary revolution whose products were committed first to the handwritten scroll, then in the time of Augustus to the handwritten codex, then in the mid-15th century to the printed codex, and now to electronic devices via digital media in the 21st century, with more new media sure to come at ever briefer intervals. Over these millennia, each new medium has had unanticipated effects as writers and readers explored its capabilities and discovered its potential through experiment. And so it will be in the new world of digital text now developed. It's still too soon to see the whole picture, however. Those of us who produce or conserve the written word are faced with a choice. We can stick with our printed books, hoping that they can peacefully coexist with computers and Kindles and iPads and iPhones. Or else we can join the revolution and try to guide it in win-win directions, embracing the potential of the new while holding on to what the old does better. It remains to be seen whether print books will still be needed or whether digital media can do it all or, as in the case of digital music, do it well enough. Certainly print books are still needed for now, except perhaps for the sort of simple uh, texts we read in trains and planes. About prospects for the long-term coexistence of digital and print, the classical precedents are not especially reassuring. Each new medium has eventually replaced the older one, though not all at once, for all types of texts and readers. Christians and other doctrinaire sects quickly adopted the codex for their gospels, but for more complex and prestigious writing, the role survived for another three centuries. A millennium later, for similar reasons, the higher prestige manuscript codex coexisted with the printed codex, but this time only for a matter of decades. These precedents aren't necessarily predictive for the digital age because digitization rep represents a paradigm shift. Unlike the role or the codex, it isn't a format or an object or even an efficiency of production, but rather one or another code language waiting to be instantiated on something that can retrieve and display it as text, whether paper or screen. In this respect, it is more like a tool than a product, a tool still mainly thought of as making a product, written texts more portable, distributable, and searchable. Beyond that, its capabilities and applications are still in the discovery stage. Unlike scroll or codex, digital instantiations can take various forms, some more threatening to the printed codex than others. Insofar as they replicate or try to improve on and thus compete with the codex model, and as they try to answer the needs of as many varieties of readers as possible. One digital category enables a device to stand in for a codex. PDFs more or less reproduce pages. Ebooks discard pages and resurrect scrolling, the very feature that pages were invented to supersede two millennia ago. 
The main advance here is physical. Any number of texts can be available on the reader's device pretty much anywhere. While publishers and retailers are spared the costs of typesetting, printing, shipping, and warehousing. But thus far, the codex isn't essentially threatened, since the devices, especially portable ones, aren't very useful for complex texts, and for many readers, they're hard on the eyes. Devices are also an added cost before reading can even begin, as are paywalls. They are limited in what they can display easily. PDFs can be printed out to restore the pages of a physical book, but not its more attractive and durable form. While ebooks, which have left the codex instantiation behind, lack the navigability and ease of reference that simple page numbers afford, and they haven't found a functional equivalent for such artifacts of the page as marginalia and notes. Even when they try to display pages, uh, ebooks don't display them properly. They're not really pages. They move around too much, so reference to them is very difficult. Another category of digital text, more abstract, being pure tools without design and device features for instantiation on a platform for reading, are various encodings made available as such for the searching, data mining, and crowdsourcing of texts. Since they are not for reading, or to use the preferred digital age word, browsing, they do not compete with the codex though they do require its digitization to operate. So the codex has to be digitized in order to produce the code that can then be searched uh, in place of discrete texts. Other threats involve the stability of the texts themselves, whatever their media, ranging from bookworms and sulfur in paper to digital version upgrades and device crashes from wars and looters to cyber attacks. The bottleneck hazard is well known to students of canon formation and textual transmission. As the codex replaced the scroll, only the text deemed important or marketable at the time were copied over. And this winnowing process continued through the centuries as styles of copying changed, minuscule script, uh, majuscule script, and so forth. Thus, over the millennium and a half of the handwritten codex existence, a long list of works that we would dearly love to read today didn't get through the bottlenecks, and some treasures just barely made it. Aeschylus's Oresteia trilogy is preserved complete in a single 10th century manuscript. Works deemed prestigious enough to be written on parchment stood a better chance of survival than those written on paper. Works extant today that are neither digitized nor kept in print will be lost as their codices are discarded or disintegrate. Since digitized texts are easier and cheaper to store and circulate, they potentially stand a better chance, despite their physical disintegration. But digital text is no less vulnerable, perhaps more vulnerable than physical books. Someone has to mind the machine and curate its digital texts. The one surviving manuscript containing all of Aristophanes' extant 11 plays was written circa 950 and is still uh, in fine shape, beautiful, easy to read. Whereas the text that I saved to floppy disks 20 years ago of Aristophanes is irretrievable. 
No one knows how long anything in digital form today will be still searchable and readable in 20, 10, 5, or even fewer years, or really how to plan for its survival, or who will pay to keep the code current. What we do know is that keeping digital texts updated to the latest uh, protocols and storing them on appropriate medium is expensive in skilled labor and equipment. These historical considerations were on our minds six years ago when the Loeb Classical Library Foundation met with its publisher, the Harvard University Press, to discuss possibilities for online publication. It wouldn't simply be mounting PDFs which would do nothing interesting. Anyone can make their own PDFs after all, and which would only compete with our print, print volumes. Rather, it would have to be a site that harnessed new possibilities made possible by technology, enhancing rather than mimicking or repackaging the print library, which we like well enough. The time seemed right. I mean, there was a the question, why go online at all? Um, but the time did seem right. Uh, most of the libraries, over 500 volumes then, those predating the 1990s, had not been digitized. And that needed to be done sooner or later in any case. So why not do it now and see what we could do? The press had long changed over to digital printing, and so the lobes as in some other respects, like the size of the volumes, um, were uh, a throwback, uh, something that was dragging on the efficiency of the modern press. Uh, but for many Loeb volumes, uh, digitizing wasn't possible or wasn't yet possible. Uh, there were only printer's plates dating back many decades. Uh, every Loeb volume stays in print until it's revised or replaced, which we do every year, in addition to creating new Loeb volumes. So having them all in digital form would make the editing and publishing very much easier. Uh, also, the text in the volumes reprinted from the old plates uh, looked increasingly ratty, unacceptable in a series designed to be attractive. It was also technologically the right time to think about going online. Web designers were now capable of handling volumes as complex as lobe volumes. And the press wanted to start digital publication with its most complex volumes, the lobes, from which it would learn the most. So they'd be ready uh, when they go forward with other online uh, publication for pretty much anything that hit them if they could handle this. But what path to take? publish the volumes as ebooks, or as a contribution to the so-called digital humanities, that is, as raw texts that people could download and use for their own projects, as, for example, the Perseus Project has long been doing uh, that with our out-of-copyright uh, out lobes. Or some new format, publish all the volumes or a selection, or just bestsellers like Homer and Virgil. Well, there was some sentiment that publishing 500 volumes, um, some of which is pretty arcane, and some of it very difficult, like three volumes of Greek mathematical works, which contain uh, innumerable symbols, many of them now outdated as mathematical symbols. Uh, so do it all, or just maybe just good stuff. Would the online version be like a Kindle book and have essentially the same function as the print version? Or would it do something uniquely digital? 
Would the online version be different from the print version, say by adding more notes or maybe commentaries, maps, pictures, or by incorporating revisions and corrections in advance of their print publication? Would everything be free? Or would it be kept behind a paywall, charging for a license or a subscription? Fortunately, we could begin our planning by contemplating the library itself, with its unique mission, history, character, and iconic status. The idea for the library was conceived and implemented by James Loeb himself. Now, this is a picture from Loeb's student days. Uh, Loeb was born, raised, and educated in the United States, but obliged by his family to move to Germany uh, to take his place in the family banking business. Uh, while in Germany, uh, Loeb constructed a, a grand estate in Murnau, near Munich, where he retired, um, having um, frequent nervous breakdowns. Uh, Sigmund Freud was his analyst. Um, and the breakdowns enabled him to go to Murnau and cultivate uh, his real interest, uh, philanthropy uh, and visionary acts. Uh, he became a remarkable uh, philanthropist and visionary, not only in classical literature and archaeology, for which he had developed a passion at Harvard, but also in medicine and music. Uh, he was a gifted cellist. Most people don't know that creating the Juilliard School was one of his projects. And the people at Murnau, um, I'll uh, have a chance to visit again next month. And, and uh, uh, a couple of years ago, they hadn't even realized that Loeb was interested in classics um, beyond collecting antiquities. Uh, they thought it was medicine and music only. Um, um, and they're very excited to find out about the Loeb Classical Library. He originally wanted to create the Loeb Classical Library with facing German translations, uh, Germany, <clears throat> Uh, in the early 20th century being the epicenter of classical scholarship and philology. Um, but when the classical community and its publishers in Germany discouraged the idea, he turned to the Anglophone world. In the inaugural volumes of 1912, uh, Loeb described his idea for the library this way, to make the beauty and learning, the philosophy and wit of the great writers of ancient Greece and Rome once more accessible by means of translations that are in themselves real pieces of literature, a thing to be read for the pure joy of it and not dull transcripts of ideas that suggest in every line the existence of a finer original form and from which the average reader is shut out and to place side by side with these translations the best critical texts of the original works is the task I have set myself. And his motivation for such a task? He continues, in an age when the humanities, this is 1912, uh, in an age when the humanities are being neglected more perhaps than at any time since the Middle Ages, and when man's mind, men's minds are turning more than ever before to the practical and the material, it does not suffice to make pleas, however eloquent and convincing, for the safeguarding and further enjoyment of our greatest heritage from the past. Means must be found to place these treasures within the reach of all who care for the finer things of life. These concerns are, of course, as valid today as they were then. So here we have a mission as valid for the digital age as it was a century ago. 
to place these treasures within the reach of all who care for what he unashamedly deemed to be the finer things of life. And that was not all. The means were as important as the need. Loeb personally specified the design of the volumes, now established as their trade dress. Red for Roman, green for Greek. And these colors, which are not quite like reds or greens anywhere else, and of a special size. He specified handy books of a size that would fit in a gentleman's pocket. And there would be a special logo, which he designed, uh, and elegant Roman and Greek fonts. The volumes would not be a book series, but a library, a collection that remained permanently in print, its volumes revised or replaced as necessary, and intended eventually to hold, as he put it, all that is important in Greek and Roman literature and placed within the reach of all, including the average reader. And since the volumes would contain the finer things of life, they must themselves be finely made. But they must also be affordable, and each would be priced the same as all the others. Since the development and permanence of such a library could not be the business of any publisher, publishers aren't set up to do this, Loeb created a charitable foundation, the Loeb Classical Library Foundation, that would be operated by trustees, of whom one was always to be a member of the Harvard Department of the Classics, and would be handsomely endowed so that the volumes could be sold as inexpensively as possible by a press contracted for that purpose, whether or not the library made any money. And Loeb did not think it ever would make any money. But if the library did make money, that money was to be given away uh, as fellowships for the encouragement of special research at home and abroad in the province of archaeology and of Greek and Latin literature, and that the awards should be granted without distinction as to sex, race, nationality, color, or creed. Pretty advanced for 1912. And this uh, last provision aimed to make life easier from the future for scholars like himself. He had been told by authorities in classics and archaeology that as a Jew, he could not expect to make a career as an academic, though everyone was happy to take his money. <laughs> in any event, as the library and its endowment grew, it did begin to produce a surplus, especially after 1989, when its British co-publisher, Heinemann, was acquired by Elsevier, and Harvard University Press became the sole publisher. Today, the foundation is a major source of funding for classical research. So anyone anywhere in the world, uh, even in this room, uh, who uh, has a, a good project, just go online and uh, all the application materials are there. It's very simple. Um, <clears throat> Loeb's vision and direction have proved remarkably successful. The library, as of this afternoon, numbers 522 volumes and is not at all static. It adds four to six new revised or replacement volumes each year. Originally weighted toward rather belletristic translations, since in 1912 even the average reader could be counted on to read Latin or perhaps some Greek. The library has grown more scholarly over the decades, 
in terms of text, annotation, and fidelity of its translations. And this is partly also uh, a, a factor of its being side by side with the originals for so long, um, that people tend to want the translation to be more, more faithful to the original, more of a guide to it, as their Latin and Greek becomes less and less confident. And of course, in response to changing times and tastes, uh, the library must change. For example, updating or replacing outdated or no longer fashionable English styles. There still are a few of the so-called Twain and Swain school left in the library. Quintus of Smyrna being maybe the most egregious example. Um, but it's hard to find people who are ready, willing, and able to revise Quintus. I think I've got one, though. So stay tuned if you're Quintus fans. Uh, and since relaxation of Anglo-American obscenity laws in the late 1960s, uh, rendering plainly the considerable amount of indecent, obscene, and often politically incorrect expression found in this, after all, pagan literature, uh, that has to be updated too. And it's now possible to do so. Although it's, it's always going to be changeable as far as political, politically correct or incorrect expression. Uh, this changes very often. So um, what didn't raise an eyebrow in 1912 might be horrifying today and vice versa. Changeable too is a definition of all that is important. Lately we, we have been adding works that were once considered quite arcane. Hermesianux of Colophon, anyone? Uh, he's coming to a bookshelf or a terminal near you. Quintus of Smyrna is another one. Uh, 20 years ago, uh, when we had a, an assessment of every volume in the library by experts, uh, the experts rated Quintus A, that is fine as it is, not needing replacement C or revision B, um, even though the whole volume was, was absolutely wretched. Uh, this was the, the edition that Quintus deserved, being, <laughs> being such a bad poet. Uh, but that was 20 years ago. Now, Quintus is, is quite hot as a great representative of late antique epic, which is crazy. But if you get more into late antiquity, you can see that this really makes some kind of, a, uh, some kind of sense. Um, but they're attracting readers. Uh, we've, we're, we've also um, gone a lot more into significant corpora of fragmentary works. As interests move, moves beyond the complete works transmitted to us as canonical examples. Uh, if, for example, you've grown tired of Euripides' 18 extant plays, Rhesus is now considered spurious, here's Hecuba, or what's left of it, one of the lost ones, uh, which you can have fun reconstructing. The elegant lobe volumes themselves have developed iconic and class status, not only for scholars and general readers, but also for collectors and decorators. Uh, here's <laughs> Here's Pottery Barn, um, which recommends this unusual color of green. And here's Martha Stewart's daughter-in-law's kitchen. And of course, even Mr. Burns uh, has his, his lobes. Uh, <clears throat> so when deciding how to go online, uh, Loeb's original vision, vision was the most trustworthy guide. And the mission is certainly still valid in all of its, its parts. 
so we just had to find a way that the digital load classical library would be a version of the print library, would carry forward its, its look and feel and its status and its, uh, its, its utility, not a re-envisioning for an internet environment and not modeled on any existing resource or protocol. Its purpose would, need, would be to complement and extend the utility of the print library by making available online its full content and feature set as elegantly as the print version, uh, if we could emulate in some way the print version's elegance. Uh, so th those were the parameters that we set ourselves. We didn't know if we could do that, um, but that's what we wanted to try to do. Uh, now, the whole library, absolutely current, uh, would fit in that coat pocket with every word, text, translation, notes, front and back matter, fully searchable. Something not feasible even if you had all the print volumes at your disposal, which few individuals do. The availability of all the volumes and the search functions also enable readers more easily to discover works that might not otherwise have been familiar to them or even known by them and immediately start exploring them. Let's say you do a search and you find something in this Quintus of Smyrna person uh, and you start reading and you, you like it. How would you ever have run across this? Even if you had the whole library, you probably wouldn't go there. You can even order the print books right on the site. It's a simple interface uh, because the Loeb library, despite being very complex, uh, was designed by Loeb to be a simple kind of book. Uh, given its content. Um, <clears throat> landing page, uh, if you go on the site, um, you'll see the landing page. It's, it looks very simple. Uh, all of the functions um, are under the browse or about the library or the bylobes feature. And so it's not, it's not a confusing list of things. Um, you can browse authors in alphabetical order easy to find an author. Um, these authors are not all in their own volume, of course. Uh, some volumes have more than one author in them, certainly more than one work. Uh, and some editions in the Loeb Library have hundreds of different authors in them. So here's how you can find the author. Uh, and then you can go uh, to find what works of those authors are in the library. You can browse volumes, and you can get them in order of publication. The first volume published in 1912 was Apollonius of Rhodes, Argonautica. And then the lobes are all numbered 1 through 522 uh, in order of publication. <clears throat> you can go to individual volume, and you see its representation uh, and its contents. So you can read it just like the, uh, the print volume. Starting with the introduction and uh, using the, the page forward uh, and, and uh, backward for pages to step through. And you can go to a page in the little go-to box. Uh, <clears throat> you can find the volume in a library near you. Uh, or you can uh, buy it on, on, the, on the site right here. Uh, 
Browsing uh, closely approximates reading. Um, flipping through, and these, these pages can size to your device. And here's the page of Ajax. Uh, these are all views. Digital text doesn't have pages or margins or anything like that, but these are all tagged uh, so that they can be viewed as if it were low volume, green and red uh, volumes as if they were laying out there. Uh, we put textual notes at the bottom of the page. Uh, <clears throat> instead of hiding them, um, but uh, footnotes, uh, we decide not to put them at the bottom of the page because they would clutter. Uh, and also, um, it was easier to see, um, to see the text and not have to deal with the footnotes. If you want the footnotes, you can pop them up. And if you, if you want any individual footnote, it pops up in a little window. And if you hit uh, view all footnotes, um, all of them will pop up so you can read them if you like reading footnotes. Uh, so that was the decision of how to display. Slight difference from the codex page. Uh, you can search for words. Um, you can put virtue, say, in the search box and um, get uh, summary results. And these are just a list of all the uh, places where you can go to see where virtue, um, this would be in the translation, of course. Uh, <clears throat> and look at the, the, all the criteria you can use. You can break your search down uh, in authors by period, uh, by, by genre, or subject. Uh, so if you want to know where, where all philosophers talk about virtue and you don't care where epic poets talk about them, you can just narrow in philosophers. Or you can find a, a group of kinds of genres. Um, that was another problem that we had is what genre everything is in. And, uh, and to choose a list of genres or dates that wouldn't be too long. Because uh, nobody wants to scroll through hundreds of fine-grained generic marking for these works and and authors. So uh, <clears throat> we, we pretty much split it between poetry and prose, century, uh, and main genre. Some of them have more than one, but just a few genres. Uh, and that would orient people in the searches. Um, and you can go uh, and see um, the passage uh, where it is. Um, <clears throat> And you get the, the Latin and the Greek uh, result for the context. And you can specify how much context uh, you want. Um, Virtue has 726 items that to look through. So probably uh, splitting them up by time period or something makes it easier to work through. And if you hit on one of these results, you go right to the page. And the search, res uh, the search result is highlighted on the page. Uh, so you can easily see that if you want to clip it. I'll get in a minute. If you want to save that, you can highlight it and copy it and put it in your own little workspace to save. And that automatically drags the reference in the volume to that space, too, so you know where it's from. So you can go back to it or cite it. Um, if you want to do a Greek search, then a little Greek keyboard pops up. And you can search for arete in Greek, and that will get you the Greek results. Uh, and that'll tell you, uh, and if you do a complex search, arete and virtue, it'll tell you uh, who translates that 
particular word as virtue. Now, otherwise, there are several words that are translated as virtue. My Lobes is a, is a wonderful place online where uh, you have your own personal space that you can invite others into, like students, or anyone else who shares a subscription uh, and make course packs or lists uh, of references for yourself or others um, by taking things uh, out of the, the volumes or the searches. Uh, and you can, you can save bookmarks, searches, annotations that you make uh, to accompany the material uh, in your account. If you are at Harvard University and you move to the University of California uh, you can, uh, and change your account, uh, you can take MyLobes with you. You'll, you'll always have your own space wherever you go. <clears throat> the, two the two libraries are meant to be complementary in form and function, but not in content. Uh, they're kept exactly in sync. It would be easier to revise or even amplify works online instead of waiting for reprints or worrying about finding editors for different works that might be in the same print volume. But that would make the print versions less attractive. So we wanted each version of the same library uh, to play its appropriate roles. With books like these, the print versions have distinct advantages, but there's still some downside to keeping in sync at the moment. Typos and consistency of format, for instance. It would be easy to correct remaining typos or other infelicities in the volumes immediately. In the process of digitizing, uh, we found them all, uh, but syncing means that they won't be corrected until the respective volumes are reprinted with correction. Same for style sheets. Uh, we discovered that the library had over 300 style sheets uh, over the century. Each volume had been built according to its type and style and the author's preferences and the, the uh, vogue of the day. Uh, and so it built up into quite a few. Uh, so that's got us quite apart from the online site uh, starting to standardize what can be standardized over a library containing so many different kinds of works. Uh, so eventually, um, the digitization, uh, the work on the digital and the work on the print um, will uh, help each other uh, as they stay in sync. Um, achieve a, a, a better product in terms of reference and in, in other respects. Loeb's mandate of affordability was also a concern. Each print volume currently sells for $26, a bargain considering their quality. So online access should be equally reasonable. It can't be free. The digitizing and site design has already cost over a million and will cost that much more again for planned improvements that I'll be mentioning in a moment as well as for sheer maintenance. And since we're not a static monument, but producers of new content, we need the collaboration of authors, editors, and publishers, and now online technicians, to produce and curate a high-quality collection. Of course, we also want to continue to provide our Loeb Classical Library Foundation fellowships. So we went the route of licensed access to the full content and complete feature set of the Digital Loeb Classical Library made available to academic and public libraries via both subscription and perpetual access plans with, with pricing tiered by the size of the institution. There's an access plan available to secondary schools at a substantially reduced price. Individual subscriptions are $150 to begin, 
and 65 a year after that. Uh, another bargain uh, comparable to the print books, considering that the whole print library costs around $13,000 and needs a lot of bookshelf yardage. Uh, so uh, we encourage you to buy your, the print books that you can't do without, um, but rely on the online library for Quintus and other specialized tastes. The coded texts couldn't be made available for digital humanities youth use either. Um, they've been fully tagged for our platform and organization. In addition, important aspects of the Loeb brand are exacting standards and reliability. And there is our desire to keep each print and online version of the library consistent and integral. Uh, that said, the library has always encouraged fair use of its contents and fair use will be even easier with the MyLobes function. An interesting question that arose was whether to include obsolete, that is revised or replaced volumes online. Some of these have become real classics in their own right, but they need to be replaced, and then they're retired. We decided that the in-sync principle ruled this out, at least for now. It's easy to think of uses for such an archive for example, for students of translation or the history of scholarship. And that would arguably be a digital rather than a print specialty. But these are things to keep in mind for the future. And this is very much version 1.0 of this library. In the realm of coexistence, uh, sales so far have been very good for the online library and we see no effect on sales of the print volumes. That's not unexpected. Many out-of-copyright volumes are already available online as PDFs. In Perseus, they're digitized, freely distributed and usable, and equipped with robust search capabilities, easy navigation, and even grammatical parsers, and have been for decades. But this has never affected the print sales, and we don't expect that the digital low classical library will cannibalize them either, um, but rather will continue to complement the print library. Indeed, the easy discovery of works online might well improve print sales. The project took five years and involved the foundation, the Harvard University Press, and several vendors. I want to wrap up by recalling some of the challenges in the process and some important tasks ahead. Describing lobes to machines revealed a lot that we take for granted after a couple of millennia using books with pages. Um, but that need, but, but needs new solutions as we go online. Uh, machines, it turns out, are, are very literal, um, whereas the codex and the way we use it has a lot of metaphor involved in it. The human brain and the codex work together to produce a result. At the moment, digital is, you know, what you put in is what you get out. Sheer digitizing. Uh, for the Greek, there's no OCR. You can't um, OCR Greek. Uh, so we needed to find a way to digitize it by hand. Uh, and a great solution was to have three operators type in all of the Greek, and uh, the computer would discard any one of them that was uh, different from the other two. So the, the chances are that all three would make a mistake, or that even two would make the same mistake, uh, was pretty small. Uh, so uh, that's a laborious process to have three, um, but the level of accuracy that came out from that was good enough to compensate for it. Uh, we needed uh, a new Unicode font. We have our, 
our, our uh, lobe text, um, but the fonts had to be uh, made so that uh, they would look good online and look good scalable online too, especially the Greek. Uh, this is uh, 41 pages of fonts that we had. Um, the green is already in the, in the uh, font set. Purple was to be added. Um, black, creative, necessary. Uh, so we had to go through thousands of these characters, find out um, how each would be scaling, which characters are in the library now, which we will have to have. What about Arabic and Hebrew, say? Uh, will we always have them, never have them? Which characters never stand next to which other characters? Now, why build dynamic relationships among characters that will never stand next to one another? I don't think that had ever been asked before. Uh, it took me a whole day thinking about Greek. And then at the end of the day, I thought I was done. And oh, I forgot about inscriptions and, and numbers. Uh, those letters, letters used as numbers, do stand next to funny other letters. So it took a lot just to tell the machine what we take for granted. <clears throat> How to represent the various aspects of codex facing pages. Have, uh, here we have a page with uh, Latin text and English text, textual notes right under the text, footnotes right under that at the bottom of the page, and then marginalia. Now, pretty much every word I've used to describe this they are codex words. Now, these things don't exist online, they're just views. Uh, so how to represent these various aspects? We've already seen that footnotes get into pop-up. Um, text and textual variants, they're going to be still at the bottom um, because they are part of the text. Those are simply versions of the text different from the one that the editor is printing here. So they should be there with the text. Footnotes, if you want to know, pop it up. Search functions, the naming of the authors, the works, the dates, the genres, sometimes that's not so clear. Uh, <clears throat> marginalia, too. Uh, Something has to be done with those. These and a myriad other unexpected problems and decisions faced us. Uh, so what's next for the digital library? The current version is 1.0. Um, there's lots more to do, but we wanted to launch it as soon as its basic browse and search functions were operative um, in a suitably smooth and elegant way so that we could learn from users. And uh, we already knew that there were uh, agenda for the future, but uh, and we're working on version 2.0. And especially, I want to just single out scalability, search refinement, and navigability, and some of the things that are involved. Um, here is a view from the iPhone. Uh, we can't get much smaller than that right now, and that's it for the iPhone. So facing pages on the iPhone, and just in case you want to look at facing pages on an iPhone, um, it should be possible. And who knows, there's an Apple Watch, you know. <laughs> Ideally, they should be visible on any device. So might as well start on that. Search refinement. Now here's Euripides' Hecuba again. The search cannot find words containing critical symbols like angle brackets that are used for editorial supplements. So if a word is split by a diacritical or a critical mark like that, it's going to be ignored by the search right now because those are ubiquitous uh, for other uses in our digital language, HTML5. Um, here's a little bit of HTML5, and you can see 
<laughs> those are those angle brackets. So we have something that's used in codex critical editions and something that's used in a uh, digital language. So we have to find some, some way of doing that, uh, short of tagging each single word in a special way for the search engine. Also, search results are to page, not section of work. And that leads to the challenge of navigability. Already a large challenge just for the Greek and Latin texts, and huge when the translation and notes are included. Certainly, you can't go to a particular place within a major division of a work, except by flipping pages. Uh, and these are reachable only by the table of contents uh, or the page number. Uh, <clears throat> here you can go to books of the Aeneid, you can go to these parts, and you can go to page numbers, uh, but you can't go to Aeneid 5, book 5, line 312. You can't tell it that, because it hasn't been tagged to go there. Um, it's easy in Virgil, maybe, but this has to do with the way classical texts are organized not by a simple reference system like pages or chapter numbers and footnotes, the kind of system that machines like, but a hodgepodge of traditional systems and numberings native to the codex and internationally standard so they can't be changed. Take Plato, for instance. Uh, here's Plato. The text is identified uh, as in standard editions, so the page number is irrelevant. You don't refer to Plato by a page number. You refer to him by 343b, Two, three, four, five. Any any text anywhere of Plato now has that. Um, but the translation um, is keyed only by its position opposite the text. So if you go there in a search and you want to see that part, you go over here. But there's no standard division in a translation. Uh, we just know it's there because it's on the opposite side of the codex. Uh, just look over. Machines don't like just looking over. They want to know what exactly are you looking at. Uh, so how can we do that? Um, also marginalia, um, Plato's texts conveniently have this complex system of reference using the margins for the little letters A, B, C, D for sections of the number. These have to be anchored to the text um, in a way that they'll always be in the right place if shown in a page view. But what's the right place in a codex? Who cares? You know, it, uh, the text is somewhere, this page number and that little thing, it's somewhere in there, some word in there. It's not that far away, maybe a line at the most in any text. Um, but our texts are scalable, um, and the machine wants to know where those pages are exactly, not just somewhere, because they don't have pages. Uh, <clears throat> Plato, um, like Plutarch, um, is keyed to Stephanus numbers. That is, he's the, these numbers, 353 in that example, is a page number of an edition by Henri Estienne, um, a three-volume edition of 1578. Line numbers, um, these are page and ABCDs are from this edition. The line numbers are from the 1907 edition of uh, Burnett, which is an Oxford classical text. So these are just agreed upon international reference standards. Here's closer in. Current editions aren't precise about these. Um, they just put them in the margin near where the other edition has them, and it's okay. Um, so uh, to scale that, uh, we have to know where they are. So it's grad students to the rare book room, um, get SDN and go through and mark 
those divisions. Uh, and so you see in this example, those little things, that's, these are exactly where those SGN pages are in the original. Um, so we can, no matter how our text is displayed and where and on what device, you're going to know exactly where um, the reference is. So here's an example of where the online, although it's been a huge labor, <laughs> is actually better at reference than the codex. And so on uh, for other texts. By books, chapters, sections, poems, lines, fragments, some like Galen have two sets of old edition numbers, as well as book, chapter, and section. So that's three different reference systems in Galen. And people that use Galen go to them for, from different perspectives, depending if they're historians of medicine or classicists or general readers. Uh, so all those things have to be built in text by text, uh, and that's going to occupy us for the next few years. Um, and some, some expense. Um, but eventually, um, it'll be uh, constantly improving, as is the print library. Um, finally, uh, just one more little spin-off that I would mention. Um, digitization of all of the library has enabled us um, to create an online uh, workspace for authors of Lobes who are creating or revising Lobes. Um, you can have a digital version of the Latin and English or the Greek and English side by side, pre-formatted for Lobe. So everything you want in the, in the print version and online is going to be automatically in there. Um, and you can see all the formatting. Over here, you want marginalia, just put marginalia. Um, and that'll, that'll settle it. Uh, so um, this will eliminate mailing in the manuscript with a disk and copy editing and printing out and, and uh, you know, all of the pre-proof stuff. And it, it enables me um, to help authors um, who have a problem with something. I can just go online with them uh, onto the Genesis site and um, just take over their cursor if need be. Uh, so this is a wonderful uh, tool. Um, not a, not the digital online, but uh, a spin-off of it that's been very useful. So in these ways, um, I think that we're off um, to a good start in truly having a complementary uh, a set of tools um, to use this great old resource and one that James Loeb uh, would very much have liked. I hope in, indeed he has. Well, thank you very much. <laughs>